dark side. Light this bitch up. What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. We are continuing Plymouth Brethren Christian Church Week here on Blackballed, and today we have a very, very, very interesting guest. Sometimes when I take a look at these ex-members that I've been getting to know over the past year, I have to remember that while I see many similarities in all of their stories, uh, especially when it comes to alienation from family members and things like that i always have to remind myself quietly that each one of these stories are unique in their own specific way and my guest today has like three or four things that really differentiates his story from others and i really wanted to have him on the show so he would please welcome my guest today his name is bradley mccallum bradley how are you buddy good thank you james Oh, I'm Glad really to happy to have you on the show today because um, I've been I, I've watched the podcast that you did with the get the with the get a life crew, and uh, you know I've talked to you a little bit and reading about some of the things that um, you've gone through is and and listening to it uh, has been really eye opening. So, I, but I want to do what I normally do in these situations and start from the beginning. Um, where did you grow up, and what was your early childhood like? Yeah, I grew up in in Detroit. Uh, so southeast Michigan, um, in the in the meeting that was called Detroit, we didn't live actually in the city. We lived in a suburb. Um, we did live in the city, but when the neighborhoods started to become integrated and change, and crime started to rise in the city, the brethren all bolted and moved to the suburbs. Um, but even as a kid, that seemed really weird to me um, that we were going to just cut and run. But we did. Uh, my childhood is very, my childhood, and, and particularly I'm 52, uh, my childhood I, I realized in talking to a lot of people that I grew up with, honestly, um, I, my childhood was, was very sheltered in comparison to most of the most of the brethren kids of that era. Um, it was honestly quite happy. Uh, my father was very distant and kind of uh, remote, I would say, cerebral and kind of remote and distant. My mother was uh, definitely the woman in charge in the house. Not, not, not openly to, like, to the rest of the world, my dad was clearly the man in charge, but my, woman, my, my mother was the woman who ran the place. Um, she kept us kids in line and, and dealt old-fashioned kind of 1950s discipline. Yeah. <laughs> to us. Um, I had two sisters. Um, my parents are both gone. Uh, but it was it was a, actually a very happy childhood. My mother had a terrible accident in, um, it's actually 39 years ago today. It was in 1984 um, where she was, she and I were walking to the meeting, which was walking to church, um, and a motorcycle hit her when we were crossing the street. Oh. She was... Um, really terribly injured, survived, um, but was an invalid the rest of her life. So wow. um, that other, other than that, I mean, which, which created a lot of challenges for us as a, as a family. Um, it was great. I, my, my sisters both married really wonderful guys. 
Um, well, I, I honestly can't say a bad word about. I mean, obviously they're not very. I'm. They're both. They're all still in. I'm the only person in the family that is out, mm-hmm. outside. Um, but my brother-in-laws and my sisters have been nothing but, but nice and kind and lovely, uh, except for distant, not wanting to talk to me. And I know that sounds oxymoronic. You know what? It sounds human. Uh, and the reason why, just for listeners that may not be up to speed on, on you know, the type of circumstances that happen to people when they leave or when they're forced out, is I always find it really interesting when ex-members of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church have um, empathy for the family that is that remains, despite the fact that there is that distance and, and lack of communication. Um, is that because you know what they're going through? I, I think so. They're, they're believers in the system. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the term believer that most people in mainstream society refer to as believers in Christianity. But I use the term believers and they believe in the Plymouth Brethren thing, which is, I believe, different than normal mainstream Christianity. Um, they believe in the system. They believe in the system. They believe in the leaders. Um, they are very, very strongly believe- But they're also very nice people. <laughs> And they've never yeah. mean to me. They've never been real. They've never been like some some people have dealt with really terrible relatives and and family members. I I, I have not experienced that. My dad accepted. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my siblings and and the other part, my my in law, my my brothers in law, no, they they've been wonderful people. But but they're but they're but they're believers, so they will have nothing to do with me. So that's that's kind of sad. Um, you mentioned your dad being distant. Um, is there, and, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, but I want to I want to pause uh, on the chronology for a second because I, I kind of want to get to your teenage years and then your twenties. But I'm wondering about um, the Aberdeen incident and how if that had a long lasting impact on your family, and if you could explain what that incident was for my audience who may not be familiar with it. Yeah, um, it did. It had a. I mean, my upbringing and my growing up, I, I was, so, so let me, so in 1970, um, so the Brethren have this, this figure they have for a hundred plus years, have had a figure that is kind of like the Brethren Pope. I mean, for lack of a better word, it's the, this sort of person that is looked to for leadership and guidance. Um, and in the 50s, there was this kind of long kind of period interregnum where the leader had died in 1952 or 1953, and there was this long sort of period until 1960 where it was unclear as to who was the next leader, and there was a lot of thought that maybe maybe there wasn't going to be another one single leader. Maybe it was going to be a group thing, a mutual thing. Um, but there emerged at the end which we can talk about or not and at some point. In 1960, um, the, f- the leader who had died in 1952 or 1953, his son kind of emerged. This is Jim top. Taylor that died, and then his son, Jim Taylor Jr., took over. Correct, yeah. Right. So Mr. Taylor Jr. took over. It was a very, char- char- I mean, all of these guys that kind of run, that are very, very prominent, all have this element of charisma about them. Some of them, it's, it's, there's different elements of charisma, or there's different aspects of it, and some are, uh, but, but I mean, from what I understand, both of the Taylors were very charismatic, but in different ways. 
But um, anyway, in 1960, he kind of solidified his hold on the thing. And then through the 60s, there was a lot of kind of controversial stuff that happened. And then uh, leading up to, kind of building to a crescendo, it was kind of growing and growing and growing. Um, there was a lot of pretty, pretty uh, objectively speaking, yeah. pretty, I mean, it wasn't even alive. But I mean, it was pretty awful shit that was happening um, in 68, 69, and then definitely into 1970. And um, in 1970, there was a conference in in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, my grandfather, who at the time would have been largely thought of as maybe number two under Mr. Taylor. Um, so they were all there. My grandfather, Mr. Taylor, there. Everyone was in Aberdeen for this big conference, and um, Mr. Taylor <laughs> was like spending a lot of time. His wife uh, was in New York. She had not come to Aberdeen, so he was there alone, and he was spending a lot of time. So he stayed with his uh, brother by the name of James Alec Gardner um, in Aberdeen, and. Um, he was spending a lot of time in his bedroom alone with a young married woman from the Brethren. You know, who, he claimed she was a nurse and she he claimed she was ministering to him and um, attending to his needs and whatnot. Uh, Mr. Gardner became so concerned about it that he eventually uh, asked my grandfather, who was also at the conference but staying at someone else's house, um, to come over and kind of intervene, yeah. intervene, intervene, intervene. Yeah. Um, so my grandfather on the, so the conferences were typically Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So on Saturday night, after this had been going on for several days, my grandfather shows up in, uh, with Mr. Gardner, goes up to Mr. Taylor's bedroom, knock on the door, and then they go in. And uh, Mr. Taylor is in bed wearing nothing but a pajama top. So he was naked. He was not naked because he had a pajama top on, but, I mean, he was naked. Otherwise. He was naked where it counts. Mrs. Kerr, who was, I think, 31 or 32, uh, was in bed completely naked. The clothes were scattered all around the floor. <clears throat> and um, my grandfather was... I don't, I, I don't know the exact verbiage of it all, but there's contemporaneous diary accounts and letters and different things that were written within that same week where, I mean, essentially he was like, you know, Jim, because my, my grandfather and Mr. Taylor had known each other most of their adult lives. So my, my grandfather had immigrated from Scotland in the 20s when he was around 20 um, and had become very quickly kind of affiliated with the Taylors and had been very close to Mr. Taylor Sr. And so, I mean, him and Jim Taylor had known each other intimately since they were young men. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he, you know, he said something along the lines of, like, Jim, <laughs> what would Reenie think? Um, meaning Mr. Taylor's wife. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Taylor said, well... I suppose you're going to go and tell her, aren't you? Um, and this was witnessed to by 
not only Mr. Gardner, but there were a couple other people standing there who heard this exchange. So and Mr. Me, Gardner is not the husband of Miss Kerr, though, right? No, he is the no. owner of the house where Mr. Oh, right. Okay. So they they actually so to me that says it all. Like yeah. that was not like aha, Mr. McCallum, I finally got you. You finally confronted me and charged me. Like because so because afterwards, Mr. Taylor tried to claim that this was all a setup, that this was all an ambush, that this was all some carefully choreographed, divinely sanctioned plan to draw out my grandfather and all the other people that oppose Mr. Taylor and make them charge him with corruption. To remove him as leader and to insert someone else? Yeah, and, and it's like, well, no, but you were. Like, <laughs> you you were in bed with a young married, like, it's not like they were making this shit up. You were doing it. And this guy, Jim Taylor Jr., um, from what I've read and been told about, because you talked about how there were scandals that were building in the 60s, basically. He kind of treated his position as leader of the Plymouth Brethren as almost like he was a rock star, right? Like he was charismatic, but but in a way, like he even sang. Like, like he was apparently a really good singer, and he was like charismatic and liked to party, and he was sort of like fashioned himself as a ladies' man. Like he was kind of like the the first rock star leader of the PBCC, wasn't he? <laughs> well, he... <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny that's a funny way of describing him but he did he he really took so like his father James Taylor senior like led the brethren for over 50 years and was this very sober very uh stately regal i mean he he had arrived in america penniless irish immigrant he worked his way into the he got a job in the linden he ended up first in canada i think he came over when he was like 12 or 14 or something really young mm -hmm. ended up in in canada somewhere then ended up in new york city but got a job in the linen industry and worked his way up and made a fortune you know in the early 1900s you could do that you know, late 1800s early 1900s you could make a fortune in america i mean that was like the but he he took extreme pains to kind of, you know, because the Irish in America in the late 1800s and early 1900s were really looked down on. They were very much the lower class. They were the, you know, the, the, the dregs. But Mr. Taylor Sr. worked very hard to present himself, both in his demeanor and in his way of life, as being this kind of old money wasp, essentially. Okay. Um, he, he, he That's called hustling. <laughs> He's a hustler. He, he, <laughs> he conducted himself with great decorum and deportment and you know he eventually you know through the years ended up in this gigantic house in brooklyn where a lot of irish and jewish immigrants lived um you know kind of the the second tier of society but he, he ended up in this gigantic house with servants and like carved furniture and oriental rugs and like just really amazing i mean he, he and, and, and then he would travel to europe all the time firstly he was doing it kind of on the back of his business because um he, he would go over there on linen buying trips but he would also like serve at conferences and things can i ask you sorry just to cut you off for a second was he a member of the brethren at this time yes he, okay. he joined when he was very young like in his teens okay 
because that's a that's a unique departure from what I usually hear about, which is almost everybody is born into it. Yeah, no, he joined, but he actually might have had some connection with the brethren in Ireland. So he was from this area called Killeney or in Sligo, something like that, um, where there were a lot of brethren connected people. Um, but I'm not sure if he was actually in fellowship or not. But anyway, but he, he assiduously worked his way up the ladder very effectively. And, and you know, he had no formal education other than, you know, the most basic kind of high school. But he, if you, like, read his writings or his, read his transcribed meetings where he, you know, addresses where he spoke or, 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 or uh, Bible readings. I mean, he was very eloquent. He was, he was clearly a highly intelligent guy. But anyway, he, he built this whole thing and then he married, you know, his first wife died. He married, he, he kind of married up multiple times. Like he married, his first wife was quite socially above where he had sort of entered the, the world. And then he married up again to this uh, woman from England um and he he lived this very kind of affluent semi-aristocratic life like some sort of like well well-behaved duke you know or, or you know duke and duchess um whereas jt jr or mr taylor jr um really didn't behave like that you know once he got into the 60s and started achieving some sort of recognition as leader he it all sort of went off the rails pretty pretty damn quick like you know you look at his 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 written and oral ministry in the 50s and early 60s it's actually very mainstream in brethren thought which was just highly conservative christian shit um and then in the mid 60s it just completely goes cuckoo you know it, it goes completely off the rails and that's when he starts all this personal misbehavior like he's clearly drinking way too much um you know he disappears in the mid-60s for months um and even my dad who was like a complete died in the wool supporter believed it was some treatment to do with alcohol consumption you know my father would never have called him an alcoholic the first thing I think of when I hear about uh, people that have an alcohol problem disappearing for months on end is cocaine. It's really, honestly, what I think of. Like, and, and, and I know people that have had secret cocaine habits for years where no one knew. Like, if, if you found out that Jim Taylor often complained about allergies, I'm certain he had a cocaine problem. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, but anyway, sorry. Go and, on. He, and he also reportedly, you know, there was a lot of talk in the mid-60s um, where he he went to Europe and he kind of disappeared for a period of time, like a week or two weeks or something in Paris where they like found him with like hanging out with like courtesans and, and shit. Like, so I, you know, how much of it's true, how much of it's not. I just think where there's smoke, there's usually some sort of a cocaine. There's, there's, some, <laughs> there's something causing, there's something causing the smoke, you know, yeah. it's not everyone making this shit up. Particularly when it's people like my dad who, like, thought that, you know, he, he deserted his own father over this whole shit and threw in his lot completely with, Gigi, with Mr. Taylor Jr. But 
so he still, gets caught. He gets caught in bed with Miss Kerp, and then he kind of uh, finagles a. a, 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 a so a so he, 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 he yeah he says he basically quickly very so he gets caught in bed. Mister Gardner tells the Kerrs they got to get out of his house, they got to leave. So they go out and like literally sit in the freaking yard. I think they might be alive, so I want to be cautious about what I say about them. Okay. Um, I believe they go out and just sit in the yard or sit on the curb or something and they just <laughs> go outside. Was Mr. Kerr not like out for blood? No, no, he was fully he was fully endorsing this whole thing. Jesus. That's like, was a like Warren Jeffs kind of scenario, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then my grandfather goes and calls I believe it was my grandfather or someone associated with my grandfather goes and calls James Taylor the third, who was somewhere in Scotland. He was not in Aberdeen. For some reason, he was not at Aberdeen during the course of these conferences. So James, you know, Scotland's not very big. So James gets in a car and hustles his, his ass over to, to, to Aberdeen, gets there sometime in the early morning. And they also call a doctor and some doctor shows up, some brethren doctor, and like says Mr. Taylor's really sick and gives them injections of some sort, which is, you know, a brethren favorite, giving people shots of one thing or another. Yeah. And then they fly him out of there. They, they, they get his ass out and back to New York. So they, like, they get him to the airport and they fly him home. Um, the meeting, the conference in Aberdeen wraps up on Sunday my grandfather and the other people that are there kind of finish up the meetings. Um, but in that interim period from Saturday night to like Monday, Tuesday, JT Jr. comes up with this concept that it's the, it's all a divinely approved plan. It was an ambush to draw out his enemies. And he gets back to New York and he aggressively aggressively prosecutes this this concept that it's an ambush and that anyone who doesn't see it is impure and he uses the scripture to the pure all things are pure and to the impure all is impure so like he's basically saying my grandfather and everyone else who saw impurity in the bedroom and him being naked in a bed with a young married woman and their clothes scattered all over the room that that was evidence that they themselves were impure that, <laughs> It's, it's so it's so stupid. It's like a shell game so of morals. Stupid. It's yeah. so dumb. It yeah. is so it's it's like hard to, to so he gets back to New York. But you know, the, the crazy thing is like almost all of the brethren in Scotland leave the brethren. Yeah, there was a mass exodus, yes. Like like in the thousands. Mm. And in New York, almost all of the meeting leaves. Like two thirds, three quarters of the meeting leaves, the brethren. So the, the, the people that left at Aberdeen, which is what this whole crisis is usually referred to as, are the people who either saw the shit happen or who knew him the best. Yeah. And everyone's like, you know what? Enough is enough. This shit's... This is... No, 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 no. This is, this is a bridge too far. We're out. Mm-hmm. You know, in other parts of the world, Australia, New Zealand, the West Coast, you know, different parts of America, I think people bought into his charisma and 
bought into this story. I mean, my grandfather wasn't particularly beloved other than, you know, a kind of a small subset of people. And then JT Jr. very quickly promulgated with the help of a bunch of, uh, well, the, well, the small group of people, they quickly started spreading the thing that my, my grandfather was a homosexual pedophile. So, like, my question is, is, like, if you knew this, yeah, why did you wait until he found you in a bedroom naked with a young woman to start yeah. telling everyone? Yeah, how many, how many fictitious boys had to be raped by your grandfather in order for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, or, 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 you know, like, if you all knew this shit, why, why didn't you bring it up before? That was, because yeah, if you wanted to remove him... Mm-hmm. If you wanted to quote unquote draw out his, you you had all so it was both and so my father and my uncle, so my family was completely split apart. My dad and uncle stayed with Mister Taylor. Mm-hmm. My aunt and my grandparents were kicked out. Uh, Mister Taylor's children, his James the Third, stayed with him. Ben, his other son, left supporting my grandfather. It was, so they're, they're completely split apart. But my dad and my uncle that stayed with Mr. Taylor went to the police in Ontario because some of the stuff they alleged happened in Ontario because Detroit, being just across the border, uh, was in constant sort of inter- interchange with meetings in Ontario. Sorry, they went to the police for what? To charge my grandfather with homosexual homosexuality, which was still a crime in, in Ontario and in Michigan. Wow. So his own son. So his own sons went to the police in Ontario and said he was not only a homosexual, which was criminal, but he had also behaved inappropriately with these boys. The prosecutor, the Crown prosecutor came back and told them that they better get lawyers for themselves. So he looked into it, the Crown prosecutor. He came back and was like, you better get lawyers for yourselves. Because if you pursue this, you're going to be the ones that end up uh, charged with with uh, with false charges. Wow. So they dropped it instantly. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they're like, oh no, 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 we're good, we're good. Your uh, father being distant then is was he kind of um, so he, he mistreated was because of his last name by by Taylor so after was, that. He was 29 at the time. Um, I think it was completely... I think this thing completely shook him to the foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there was some thought that James III was going to be the next leader, and then that didn't happen, and Mr. Simonton became the leader, and then this whole other regime started. But the whole charges against Mr. my grandfather of being a, a homosexual and pedophile and all this stuff really kind of tarnished the family name and my father just kind of i think retreated into himself i think it it so badly damaged his sense of like his world um it was completely and utterly like disruptive to him in his mind at the same time there was this stuff happening in detroit that's completely unbrethren related yeah that I think 
also played a role in completely destabilizing my my parents and that was so in the in uh there was this huge change when when the united when when the u.s government outlawed housing segregation cities like detroit which were in many ways more segregated than the southern cities through rights of covenant and things like that on houses preventing blacks and jews from owning houses in white neighborhoods and once that was all abandoned Mm -hmm. these these neighborhoods in detroit where we lived just started to change like wildly fast like you know neighborhoods change over time in detroit it happened just at lightning speed and so this world that he had and the brethren are racist which we can get back to in a minute but yeah. you know the brethren are you know they believe that whites should live where whites live and blacks should live where blacks live and so i got world, that I, I got that impression over the year <laughs> you know they use the scripture that you know the peoples of the earth and the boundaries of their dwellings um that's the scripture that is used that peoples of the earth like the whites should live where whites live asians should live where asians live and what anyway but yeah. This whole which, shit. Which, that can was I happen- just say one thing really quickly? Is that which is hilarious because um, um, they probably think Jesus was white. Which, which, <laughs> and he, which, you know, he was the, the only European ever, <laughs> like in, in the Middle East. You know, that's right. He was the only he was the only white Palestinian. That's right. Um, but so there was all this shit going on in like in our school in Detroit. Um, so moving into the early so so this and then in, in 1967 there was these um there's kind of what's sometimes called the rebellion or these race riots in detroit right. where um finally the army had to be called in the u.s army had to be called in to like call the violence and my father at the time was at the levites meetings in england so he was abroad in at bristol going to the meetings with taylor my mother was home with my sisters i was not born yet and you know there's paratroopers on the streets and there's like shooting going on and there's houses being burned and stuff and that really freaked them out but my dad was determined to stay and then so then moving on we get into 1970 there's all this aberdeen stuff happening but like just to give you an idea of the scope of change by the early 70s 73 74 my sisters i was not yet in school i was four but my um my sisters, we went from being having one black family in our school to the next school year, my sisters being the only white kids in the entire school in in one school year. Right. So the societal change was so dramatic and so rapid that I think it really destabilized my, my parents. And I think that um, that combined with all the crises within the brethren uh, completely just freaked my dad out, and I don't think he ever recovered, to be honest. Yeah, the disrupting force that that the, the Plymouth Brethren seem to have uh, intergenerationally when it comes to trauma, when it comes to um, you know uh, not being able to produce the type of natural faculties that you would need in order to sustain a normal life and a normal communications with your family. It can't be overstated, can it? I, I agree. Okay, so let's go back to you then. Um, you're in your teens. You're 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 inside the Brethren. Uh, can you give me? Um, uh, can you kind of just sort of cr- uh, cr- chronologicalize 
what life was like between the time that you were a teenager and the time that you left like just just to sort of give people an idea of the process because i understand um there's there's i've been able to sort of ascertain and i'm very much generalizing here that there are often two types of ex-members they're the type that leave on their own accord because they've had this instinct for years and it and it culminates and eventually they leave and then there's the kind that just get boom cut off and and their whole life gets turned upside down and they're forced out can you give me can you sort of take me along yeah. that ride yeah so i i um from the time i was young very young there was a lot of stuff that didn't make any sense to me about the brethren thing like that not listening to pre-recorded music if it were non-offensive or christian music i didn't understand that i didn't understand the ban on travel um and and i didn't understand a lot of things like that so I read obsessively. I became really kind of uh, not introverted, but I, I kind of lived in my head a lot. I read, read obsessively for years. Um, I became convinced very early in my life that the brethren were not right, um, that there was, there was a screw loose somewhere, <laughs> and I didn't really know what it was. But then in my teens... I was working for my dad, and um, my dad had several companies. Um, and I con concluded that uh, I should just buckle down. You know, and there was this stuff inside the brethren that they're told, if you don't understand it, don't oppose it. You know, if you don't understand it, just pray for, for light and things like that. Um, so I became convinced I should do that, and I would just work really hard at being a poster child. So... I worked really hard at doing that. I read a lot of ministry. Um, I behaved. I, I didn't do a lot of the shit that all these other people I find out later. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're all doing. <laughs> they were drinking. They were going to the movies. They were fooling yeah. around with girls. And what, it was just, yeah, I, my, life, my life was very, very sheltered that way. My father was deeply anti-drinking. Um, it sounds like you had a great mom, though. My mom was great. And my dad, honestly, you know, he never raised his, he literally never raised his voice at me in, in my life. He never struck me. He also, you know, in, in, in contrast to a lot of brethren families, he was deeply anti-drinking. He was deeply anti, you know, he was really promoted study and learning and healthy living, getting to bed early, getting up early. So it was very Victorian kind of. Um, so my parents were lovely to me, in all honesty. Um, distant. My dad was very distant, but uh, they were very kind, honestly. Um, but I just, I, I just began to lose, lose belief in the system. But then I said, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hunker down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So through my mid-teens, I really focused on doing that. And I stayed out of trouble, and a lot of other brethren kids were getting in and out of trouble for various things. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't. Probably missed out on a lot of growing up fun, but Apparently. I. <laughs> I lived a very straight-laced life, you know. Anyone who knows me growing up will tell you that I was the most straight-laced of the straight-laced, um, and I can I can concur. And then when I was uh 18 
I had, I had taken up this interest in, in, in this young sister, young brother and lady, as being a potential wife. And she was JT Jr.'s granddaughter, and I was S. McSee's Stanley McCallum's grandson, and she was James Taylor Jr.'s granddaughter. And that there was there was, there was some interest yeah. in that aspect of it, but also she was beautiful, and she was yeah. like from everyone that knew her. I had never spoken to her, but from everyone that knew her, when I could observe at conferences and meetings, she was uh, like sparkling personality. <laughs> she yeah. she had a big personality. Um, so I decided I I wanted to try and get to know her, but. You know, I was so um, concerned about following the rules that I decided I would then ask for permission from the authorities to write her a letter. Wow. So, <laughs> Sorry, I'm like laughing. That, it's not. It's not funny, really. In hindsight, it's so like, stupid. It's so yeah, stupid. Yeah. It's so stupid. Like who did? Well, you, who was leader at the time? Was that John Hales that was leader at the time? John Hales. Yeah. Okay. And um, and he probably which, didn't even know either of you. Like that's the funniest well, part. Well, <laughs> well, he knew my dad really well because right. my dad had had a lot to do with him in the fifties and sixties when they were both much younger. So he knew my father really well, and then he knew Brenda, or he sorry, I shouldn't. Uh, he knew my ex-wife because so the 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 guy who was taking like responsibility or was like the man in charge in Detroit, which was the locality I was grew up in at the time was also Mr. Taylor's grandson. Okay. So John Hales had been to Detroit for three day for, for a conference, which we called three day meetings. Um, sometime not long before this, when I got this interest and my ex-wife had been uh, in in the leader's house, like helping as a household helper for the for the conference, where Mister Hale stayed. I, I'm trying to. It's, it all sounds so convoluted, but no, no. We'd, yeah. we'd have these conferences, and everyone would stay in brethren houses. So the yeah, I've leader, heard that. yeah, I've heard that yeah. when when Bruce, like Lane Admiral, told the story about when Bruce went to a three day conference in Montreal that he stayed at his his parents' house, right? Yeah. Like, so so yeah. the the leader who was take who was taking like who was kind of like chairing the conference would always stay at the local leader's house, okay. and the local leader would always have sometimes one, two, three various brethren girls to help as servers and you know help prepare the food and help the rooms and do all this stuff they'd be kind of like household assistants and right. so there'd been this conference in detroit where mr hales had served as the kind of the leader of the chair of the conference and had stayed with the then leader rick wilson and my ex-wife had had been in the house but she was rick's first cousin um so they were so 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 anyway yeah a lot of background so mr hales knew who she was Mr. Hills knew my dad, but so I asked Rick Wilson, I'd like to write my, uh, this young lady, a letter. He's like, well, I think you should call Mr. Hales and ask him. <laughs> Rick was, you know, Rick is still alive and I'm sure he meant well, but he was, he was a dick. Anyway, um, so I call. I love so the I, I love the long pause. 
You're like, hmm, what should I? Nah, he was a dick. Okay, go on. Yeah, he, he really was. Like, if there, if there, if there, if there's anyone deserving of that title, yeah. yeah. Um, so I called Mr. Hales because at that time, apparently, it's all different now. But at that time, you could just pick up the phone and call. Huh. The, like the Brethren Pope, you could literally just pick up the phone and call him. I've been trying to get Bruce Hales' phone number for a year. <laughs> yeah, you, that's all different now, but. Yeah. Mind you, this was in 1987 or 88. Mm-hmm. So I got, you know, somebody had his number. And so I, I, my dad was like, you know, my dad being distant, but he wanted to be involved in this. So he's like, I'm going to be on the phone. I'm like, okay, great. Thanks. So I called Mr. Hills and he answered the phone and he was very nice, um, but very brief. It was maybe a three minute conversation. He just, kind of checked out who I was. He's like, oh, I, I know Garth, and my dad was on the phone, and, and he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, and they, they kind of chatted for a minute. And he says, so who is it you're interested in? And, and, and I told him who, and he's like, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I know her, yeah. Um, so I said, look, I, 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 I don't know her. I've never spoken to her. I, I, um, I would like to write her a letter. That's so cute, by the way. Like you're you're like eighteen, but like that's what I remember. Like that's what I did in grade three. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, uh, teacher, do you think it's okay if I write um, Andrea Schultz a love letter? And she would be like, yes or no, kind of thing. But like, but it's interesting because it's not an arrested development. It's just that you were so sheltered, like you said, and you were trying to be a rule following person inside the yeah. cult, right? So yeah, go ahead. That's interesting. So he says, uh, well. What I think you should do is wait. Oh, he asked how old she was, and I said she's 17. Hmm. And he said, well, what I think you should do is wait until she is 18 and then get married. Straight away. Did anyone call Brenda and ask her what she thinks? <laughs> I, I did after the call. Okay. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, we get off the phone. I kind of gulped. I was like, um, okay. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> I get off the phone and my dad said, well, you know what to do. Um, it's pretty clear. You've been given directive. And being the good rule following son, I, I call her father's house and ask to speak to Brenda and uh, she gets on the phone, and I explain who I was, which she knew. And who, who, I mean, we knew of each other. We just didn't you know, yeah. personally. So I told her what Mr. Hills had said, and she said, okay. Wow. That um, is like so many different things. It's scary. It's weird. It's peculiar. But it's also indicative of that sort of chauvinist culture, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Just deciding you know, the rest of the life for this person, who you, you know, married. and, I, and yeah. I honestly don't know if Brenda actually wanted had any interest in me. I don't know if she ever had any interest in marrying me. I, I really don't. Yeah. But but she was she's a remarkable woman. I will say that she has been a fantastic mother to our children. Um, she is the believer's believer in terms of being a brethren. Yeah. You know, she is a poster child for a good brethren person. Um, and I have nothing ill to say about her whatsoever. 
And honestly, like I say, I don't know if she had any interest in me or had any interest in marrying me. Or, but she did what she felt she was should do. And so I, I, there's there's something to be admired about that, honestly. But it's well, I mean, kind of, it's, it's, it's from what I listen, like, and I know what you mean because the people that I've spoken with, it's interesting how the brethren men and the brethren women inside um, have completely different fates and destinies and lives and different experiences and i often notice that um there seems to be a quiet uh, well there there's certainly a, a discipline and a loyalty that both men and women share in common when they're still inside but there also often seems to be a um and i'm not saying that your ex was like this necessarily but i i noticed the strain of rebelliousness quietly emerge inside many women but they don't act on it it seems like but they know that there is an unfairness happening and they just kind of stay with it and it feels like that's a common life cycle for a brethren woman yeah i would agree okay so you have kids and so we get married yeah we had five children in six years that poor brenda go ahead which (laughs) almost broke my ex-wife um i mean it was just uh, an absolutely horrific physical strain on her. Yeah. Um, I was completely immersed in my dad's businesses and working an ungodly amount of hours. And it was just an incredibly challenging period of our lives. So by this point, fast forward to the, my, our late 20s. So my ex was a year younger than me. So by this time in 97, I was 27. She had been 26. So 27, 28, 26, 27, we're into this period. I completely lost faith in the brethren thing. So the the leader at the time in Detroit who was running the show led this campaign. There was a a group, there was kind of these different groups of brethren that were kind of, it was kind of common in a lot of meetings in North America where there was people who were very, kind of towing the line and, and adhering to the John Hales directives and stuff. Cause John Hales emerging on the scene in the late eighties, um, kind of saw at least in our areas, um, kind of this renewal of sort of more traditional, almost like 1950s brethren values, like studying the scriptures, not drinking, being much more focused on sort of, more traditional Christian living, which it had all it had all gotten kind of badly off the rails, particularly during Mr. Symington, who was the prior leader's mm-hmm. um, long period of illness. You know, it had all gotten kind of pretty fucked up and kind of screwed up. And then John Hills emerged on the scene, and everything kind of he 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 kind of promoted this, and and he lived he he, he kind of like Rick Wilson in Detroit. He he lived he lived the he lived the life he preached. I mean, lived in a tiny simple house he drove an ancient car he drank tea <laughs> you know, he, he um was just this very kind of and it was very inspiring my father um who, who never you know after 1970 had never really become a leader again but he was always kind of right there underneath the leadership um and he was just this huge john hill supporter and so we were living this kind of you know, this kind of austere lifestyle. And, and, and Rick Wilson, uh, there was a whole 
contingent. So there was the contingent of people. Those most meetings had these three groups of people. There was a contingent who were like on board and living this kind of monk like life. There was a group, always a group of people who were this like 1950s brethren who were like, yeah, kind of, kind of maybe you know they had nice houses, and they had nice cars, but they were still coming to meeting and they were behaving, but. They like nice things, and then there were the people who were like half out, yeah. you know, they're they're at one foot out, and they were you know, doing stuff. And he led this whole campaign in Detroit to, and got rid of, and eventually withdrew. You know, we withdrew from this whole swathe of brethren in Detroit, like I don't know, quarter of the meeting, um, for being worldly. And there are people I really liked; they were lovely, yeah. and most of whom I'm friends with now today, <laughs> you know, they were, they were just fantastic people. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like we literally are railing these people out instead of like appealing to bring them in. We're like literally like on a campaign to get them out. Um, and then just over literally, and then my dad was doing shit in the business. So he, he was doing two things. One was he was in, he, he ran the money for the meeting in Detroit. Detroit was a wealthy meeting. Um, so some meetings were really poor and didn't have much money. Can you explain for our audience that aren't uh, familiar with what you mean by that, by the money at the meetings and, and what that oh, was? So, 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 like, when I say a meeting, so there were, like, essentially, like, dioceses. Yeah. Um, so, like, the, you know, the Brethren Diocese of Detroit, which comprised of five different meetings in different, like, satellite suburbs. Um and so each meeting had someone who was in charge of the money who would like, um, and that would be money that members, there would be collection money and donation money. So it's sort of a, just so my audience understands, it's sort of a cross between church on Sundays and the Sopranos, right? (laughs) A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, And to draw some parallels with the Catholic church. So like, obviously it's nowhere near as big or as rich as, as the Catholic church, but you have a diocese like Detroit. And then you have these subsidiary things that feed money in to the central, the central diocese, and then the money is distributed from there. And it could be donations, it could be bequests from wills, it could be just collection basket money. Mm-hmm. And my dad was the guy who collected all that and then divvied it up. But it was all done into white envelopes. So <laughs> That's where the Sopranos come in, yeah. Yeah, was, that was very Soprano like. Yeah. So he would literally, we'd get all these thousands of dollars and then we would, I would help him. He would be like, you know, can you help me? And so we would like count out these stacks of money and we would like put, you know, some stacks would go to Sydney and some stacks would go to this person. Some stacks would go here and some stacks would go there and some stacks would go there. And then some stacks would go into the Detroit purse for use for whatever we needed to do. And that just started to feel really weird to me. Yeah. You know, my my mentor, I'm just like, yeah, th- this doesn't feel right. Yeah. It's a little gangster, like it really yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. We would literally be sitting at my my dad's dining room table, and there would be like stacks, and I am not kidding, and I'm not exaggerating. There would be literally stacks of cash all over it, and we we'd be stuffing envelopes and writing names and then that would all be distributed at brethren conferences so though it would not be like wired or mailed 
in some sort of normal fashion. It would be literally handed. My dad would take it and hand it to Joe, who would hand it to Sam, who would hand it to Bob, who would then... Johnny would get on a plane to England, who would then take it over and give it to Frank, who would then fly to Sydney. So, so like, it would all... It was all done literally in envelopes of cash. And I did a calculation in my teens. And I'm like, okay, Detroit's a rich community. And we deal with more money than most places do. But even if we took an average, there is an astounding amount of money yeah. being circulated completely out of the, uh, under the radar or out of the, the reach of the authorities. Because yeah. it was all in cash. So there was that. And then and my dad just started doing stuff in business that um, I didn't agree with. Tax. I will, I will say tax avoidance. Right. Now, were yeah. they using that tax was shelters pretty, as was, a religion back then? It, sorry? Were they using religious-based tax shelters no. back then? No. No, but a lot of the businesses were doing stuff that I think the most generous description could be, say, could be described as tax avoidance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of it probably crossed the line into other be and so like my, my, my for for instance, there was there was also stuff like when my father my mother had this terrible accident in nineteen eighty four that I mentioned earlier. And the brethren at that time in the eighties were not allowed to have health insurance. So, you know, my mother had this ginormous medical bill. Can I ask why? Was it because of the, uh, like, Jehovah's Witness type thing, like God will take care of you? Is it that yeah. kind of thing? Okay. But there was no network inside, there was no formalized network inside the Brethren to take care of you. You know, you're just kind of on your own. But Mr. Symington, who was the leader at the time, told my dad, I mean, his exact words were, do whatever you need to do to qualify your family for Medicaid. Was that because he had had so many health issues, you think? But no, but Medicaid is the, the U.S. health insurance program for the poor and indigent. Right. Oh, I so he, so he yeah. told my dad, do whatever you need to do. So my dad transferred all his assets into other people's names and claimed Medicaid. Wow. And then, and, and then, and then as I grew up, as I grew older and, and paid for my mother's medical bills. And um, then took all his assets back. Um, and so there was stuff like that going on, and there was stuff in the businesses that were just, just I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And my father would not even countenance a, a conversation about it. Right. So then I, I was starting to feel like I was going to go crazy at some point because I was like, I don't agree with this. I'm completely stressed at home because of work, because of were family vo- life. Were, sorry to cut you off, but I was just curious. Were you voicing your distaste of I did to anybody? my dad okay. about the business, um, but I really didn't to anyone else. Brenda wouldn't, or sorry, um, uh, just I, I, nobody, yeah, it just I wasn't, it. yeah. Um, so I uh, I started to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to snap at some point. So one day I decided I actually need out for a period of time, a couple of weeks, a few weeks. 
I need some time away from all this. The drama and the and the brethren meeting with all the stuff going on, with the the crew that got thrown out, my stuff with my dad, stuff with the money, stuff with the businesses, stuff at home, and so I left. Uh, and I I um I went to England. So I left I left a letter, and I you know I'm not I'm not proud of what I did, but I I, I just said I've got to get out for a period of time. I'll be in touch. I'll be back. Um, so when you say I, you're not proud of what you did, it's because you felt like you abandoned your family. Yeah, I, I mean, I should have just said, "Look, I, I need some time out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take off." I mean, I should have done it face to face versus a letter. Right. Okay. Um, this is where, so, by the way, I know, I know this part of the story. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna um, tell it for you. You're gonna tell it, but I just want to let the audience know this is where your story for me not only becomes really kind of riveting for all the wrong reasons, but reminds me a little bit of Richard Marsh, just in case people are wanted, you know, want a little bit of a, of a tease as to what you're about to say, because it, it's just sort of go, it, it goes to show uh, the story you're about to tell, what kind of lengths that they will go through to get what they want from people who are sort of disobeying the credo, right? But not everybody. This is the thing that I've never been able to figure out. They don't okay. do that to everybody. There's yeah, other wonder... people that leave and just vanish, and you never hear from them again, never see them again. Nobody ever, they just disappear into the sunset. It's when they feel threatened. Oh. Well, right? Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. You you decided that you were going so to go to London. I, yeah. I, so I went and made a large cash withdrawal and drove to the airport, and this was obviously pre-9-11, literally drove to the airport, parked my car, walked into the airport, bought a round-trip ticket to London, an hour before the flight was supposed to leave, mm-hmm. paid in cash and walked onto the plane with no luggage. And, it, and you, can you imagine that happening in this day and age? That that would never happen. How much cash did you have on you? Do you remember? I had about four grand. Okay, so the, you're under the ten grand that would have under, caused under suspicion. the under the yeah. yeah. So I went. I learned. By the way, everybody, I learned that from when Brian Mulroney. Our former prime minister in Canada used to fly to New York and come back home with ninety nine hundred dollars stuffed in envelopes when he was being corrupt over here. So that's how I know that information. Well, that was the amount that everyone on the Brethren trips was allowed to take. Ninety nine hundred, really? Yeah. You could have ninety nine hundred dollars in cash envelopes on you. <laughs> There's like eighteen women in bonnets, all with ninety nine hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm sure it's just a coincidence, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. So go, so uh, you would land in London? I land in London. I go I it, I found like a like a it's like a it's kind of like a bed and breakfast, but it really wasn't a bed and breakfast, but I mean in central London. It was right in 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 um near Victoria station. So I check in there and uh and I just start walking and I literally walked and walked and walked. I mean, I walked for miles around central London weirdly uh really went retraced my steps over and over again really became extremely familiar with central london um victoria knightsbridge kensington and kind of piccadilly area and uh, went to charing cross post office. there was a post office in charing cross which is just off of trafalgar square so i went there sent a message my family 
both to my dad and to my ex-wife that I'm fine. I'm just here. And I come out, long, long story short, there were brethren following me. And so they had already figured out that I was in London. I don't know how they found that out. They had gotten London or UK brethren on the shtick. They were following me around. Um, there were these goons behind me, like tailing me like some sort of goofy cartoon movie. Um, and I like panicked. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Like, I, I number one, I told them I was going away. I told them I'd be back in touch. I told them, and these freak, this freak show, like they're following me. So I spent one afternoon like ditching them, and I did. Yeah, yeah. Which in central London, I don't know if you've been to London, but it's not. I've been to uh, I've been to London, Westminster. I stayed, and I stayed in East London. And I mean, it's so crowded, it's so busy, so jammed. There's so many alleys. You have to literally like dive into the Thames in order to just get away from people. (laughs) (laughs) So to to dump to, to 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 ditch tails that are not trained is not that hard Mm. yeah but then i got panicky that they knew where i was staying and this is irrational but i decided i'm not going back to the place i was staying um at least for a while so i (laughs) i literally slept for two or i think it was two nights possibly three on a bench in hyde park Wow. So in West London, um, because I was sure I had shaken them, and I thought if I go back to that that little hotel where I was staying, they're going to find me again, and I don't know what their plans are. So I, I slept on this bench, literally this bench, and um, then on the the morning, the last morning I was there. I woke up, I thought, well, I'll just go back to the States. Like, they think I'm here. Mm-hmm. They are looking for me here. I'll just go grab what little shit I have in the in the, in the the hotel. And then I'll go straight to the airport and get on the plane. So that's what I did. And I had bought a bike, which is kind of weird. Um, I'd, <laughs> I'd bought is a just, bike. Is that just to confuse them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I had bought a bike. They start madly researching the bike trails in London. I don't know what he's doing. Like, <laughs> so I literally get this bike. I had it locked to a fence in uh, on this road that runs down from Victoria Station outside the hotel. So I, I go and unlock the bike and I get what little shit I had, which was like one bag of stuff. I had some toiletries and things. I get in a black cab drag my bike into the cab and the guy's like what are you doing and i'm like no just just don't don't worry about it so imagine trying to explain (laughs) i'm like no 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 no." so i go to heathrow i get on the plane i check my bike at the luggage claim and again this is there was so much shit was different pre-9-11 like you could do all sorts of things with airlines like you could literally walk up to the the luggage desk with a bicycle and say, um, I'm flying back to the States. Uh, I have a bike. And they'd be like, oh, sure. Like, no problem. Like, just, yeah, here we are. We'll tag it. 
Dude, from Canada, we used to drive down to the States without a passport, without nothing. Like, they would just be like, oh, hey, white people, go ahead. Like, like that was yeah. really all it if was you're before. White, yeah. yeah. Everything. That's right. So I changed my, my flight back to go to Boston. Okay. So I thought, I'll go to Boston. So I go to Boston. I land in Boston. I'm going through the, the um, immigration line. And... They're like, come with us. And they look at my passport. They're like, oh, okay, yeah. So I go into this back room, and they said, uh, well, you've been reported as a missing person. I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not missing. I'm like, I've been in touch with my family. I'm clearly fine. I'm not missing. And they said, okay, well, that's good. We, we, you know, they're like noting things on a clipboard. Yeah. <laughs> And then they say, well, we're going to, you know, part of our policy is, is that we have to, uh, we have to advise the person who reported you as missing of where you were made contact with. Is that that a real policy? I don't know, but it sounds like it probably is. And and they, and they knew that, right? Like it's a, because I don't think that they would just make that up on behest on the behest, at the behest of. The, the brethren, I like think it's, it's a real policy that the brethren knew and yeah. used as a way to get a hold of them. That's what it sounds like, yeah. Like, were anyway, you able to appeal to them at all? Like, listen, these people that are telling you I'm missing don't have my best interest in mind. I'd really appreciate it if you would. No? No. no. It, didn't, it didn't all add up at that point to me. Right. Right okay. now, I just wanted to get out of the airport. Yeah. So I, get, I, <laughs> I got out of the airport, claimed my bike. I got in a taxi uh, took a taxi to Brookline, which is a suburb, an entering suburb of Boston, and uh, found a room and rented a, rented a place, and uh, started walking again. And it, it sounds so irrational just to be like walking around major cities. I am I'm exactly like that. I, I don't have a driver's license, and mm. I, I I don't like sitting in cars and traffic. I walk everywhere. When I went to New York, I walked from Harlem down to the World Trade Center. Like, I was just, you know, I so I get it. I understand what you mean. So I was walking, 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 walking. The next day, I'm walking, and I go into South Station, which is the big train station in Boston. So, um, I'm walking through the, the this big hall, which is like this big kind of center hall, and I feel an, a hand on my arm. And uh, I turn, and it's a brethren guy. Uh, and he says, it's time to come home. And I was exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. I was physically exhausted. And I just crumpled, you know. Yeah. So he went over to a bench, and we sat down, and he said, it's time. And he just kept saying, it's time to come home. You, you've got to come home. He was my wife's first cousin. There's another one of so all the you know there's the brethren are like one massive family. There's very little intermarriage in terms of actual blood relatives marrying, right. but everyone's either your cousin or the cousin of your wife. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like there's just everyone's cousin. Yeah. Um, and and he was someone I actually really liked and admired, and I think that was part of the plan. Honestly. Yeah. They I think they figured out where I was. They were following me somehow. They maintained still maintain so that was complete coincidence that he happened to run into me in the station that's complete bullshit anyone yeah. knows that but i i 
also believe that they had him come up to me because they knew I would probably least resist him because he was someone I really, yeah. really liked and cared about. That's smart. Yep. Um, so they put me on a plane. So he said, let's, let's get your stuff. I got a bike. <laughs> and he said, we're going to leave the bike. Yeah. 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 We're going to leave the bike. <laughs> but what about, so I just bought it. Really nice bike, a Lincoln bike. Yeah. in Boston that's about 25 years old that uh, picked it up somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, so we went to my the, my rooms and got my stuff and he drove me to the airport. Um, he was actually Rick Wilson's brother. Okay. Drove me to the airport, put me on a plane. Did he get on with you? No. They put me on the plane nonstop to Detroit and yeah. who should I walk off the plane into the loving arms of but Rick Wilson? Uh the the G Gordon Liddy of the Plymouth <laughs> Brethren. This dick, this complete dick. In my view, I'm not yeah. saying that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what was his name? Dick Wilson. <laughs> well, it could be. Yeah, yeah. Richard. Yeah, yeah. I'm your so lawyer now. He, he says you're very sick. You need to come home and get treatment. So he drives me back to my family home. Back with my wife and my then wife and kids. And this brother and doctor shows up um, who lived in Detroit and who'd been our family doctor since I was a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. And he gives me shots of something, uh, injections of something. I have no idea what it is. Tells me like, the a, rest. like a sedative? I think now. Looking back on it, I mean, he's he's dead now, and I mean, it was only him and I in the room when he was giving me these injections. Because he this this continued over a number of months, so um, I think it was some sort of sedative. Because yeah. um, he told me you're really ill, you need rest, and we're gonna this will make you feel better and f- make you feel more relaxed and allow you time and space to rest and heal. Um, but docile. he wouldn't. Talk to me. It would make you docile, in other words. <laughs> it would make me malleable. Yeah. Um, so he gave me injections, and he showed up every day for the next, I don't know, eight, twelve weeks, giving me injections. Um, and the Plymouth you know, Brethren I, have within their employ, or at least within their network, um, doctors that will do things that would probably get them. Um, have them lose their medical license if they did this. Right, the right. Well, well, you know? well, well, it used to be brethren doctors, but right. they're all now in their 90s or, or dead. So they're now hiring other people to do it. Right. You know, but at, at that time, there was still quite a number of brethren doctors. I mean, and at one time, like my father's generation, there was all kinds of brethren doctors, lawyers, yeah. engineers. There was all these people who went to university, um, which was a huge issue for me growing up that I couldn't go to university when all these all my parents my dad my uncle every they all they were all university educated yeah they were all like articulate in the ways of the world and they all knew shit and anyway so the, the, this next period <coughs> went on for about two years where I was in and out I I um was there in the house for a while, then I, I made another attempt at running away to try and get away from the what I I just felt this asp- 
like this, I felt like this net was around me, so I made an attempt to kind of run. I drove back, to, I jumped in the car, and took off to, to Boston again. That's interesting. Because you wanted to get your bike. <laughs> Looking for that damn bike. <laughs> I spent 100 pounds on this. <laughs> they grabbed me in Boston again within six uh. hours of arriving there. Sent me back. Next time I made another run for it, um, I took the train. It came through the suburb we lived in in Detroit to Chicago. And they boarded the fucking train like halfway to Chicago and pulled me off. How the fuck did they? They must have been tailing you, I guess. Uh, the, the, the shit of them tailing people and monitoring people's stuff has been going on literally. My dad talked to They were doing it in the 50s. Yeah. In the 60s. I've seen, uh, who was I talking to? Craig Hoyle. And he was talking about reading his grandparents' diaries from the 1920s. And they were doing this type of shit. They, they've been doing this stuff. So a lot of the stuff is not new. The money, right. the, the whole, the whole sort of commercialization of the Brethren is relatively new. Yeah. But most of the other stuff and most of the stuff, this has all been going on for literally generations. Yeah. So they pulled me off the train and brought me back home. So that time I figured, okay, th- this time I'm gonna have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to plan. Um, so the doctor at that. Sorry, it's funny when you say it like that. Instead of just randomly getting on a train, I'm gonna have to, you know, like did you like did you have to use like almost a, um, what do you call that, a decoy? I'm going to Florida and then head on over to Wisconsin or whatever. <laughs> no. Well, they the the last time they brought me home, they took away everything. They took my wallet, my driver's license, my passport, my credit. Well, we didn't have credit cards; we had a head of debit card. They took everything away. My checkbook, so I couldn't access anything. So, I'm like, okay. Well, the, I still was convinced that I needed to get out, but that. I would have to plan this a little bit more carefully. Yeah. You know, at some point, I don't really remember how or when, but um, maybe it was when they were all, I think, because they were all still going to the meetings and stuff, and I was just, like, in bed, supposedly tranquilized. And I found my wallet and my passport and everything. Oh, nice. So I'm like, oh, okay, now I know where it is hidden. It had not been removed from the house. It had just been secreted kind of behind some stuff, and yeah some books and things um so then i planned and um the next time i went i i did i literally went in the night like in the dark of night and i just stayed in detroit i just went and got a place a room at a motel and went and got a job right away at a hotel and um then within about a week, found an apartment. I got an apartment in like the most dark and dangerous part of the ghetto of Detroit. Perfect. Because I thought they're not going to come there. Yeah, that's right. Um, use their rate. Well, that's what you have to do, right? You use you use their racism against them, right? Like they're yeah, not gonna, yeah. And bought some bought furniture from like the Salvation Army, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, but then they started to harass me at work, so. They would like lay in. I was so I at my first job in the hotel business was working as a night, as an as a, on the night shift. So they would like lay in wait. So I would like be walking into work at like ten to eleven, and they would like 
jump out of their cars and like block my entrance into the hotel. Um, and, and finally I'm like, you guys have got to stop. Like I, you know, I said to Rick, I'm like, I'm going to file for a protection order against you if you don't stop because now you're harassing me. It's just, this is, this is, this is nonsense. So they, they kind of left me alone. And then I just kind of went on with my life and I moved quickly through in the hotel business. I, I moved fairly soon after that. I moved to Chicago, um, got a good job there, went to Germany. I could speak German. I had taken German in my school and then I took some additional classes and moved to Germany got a job in Germany. I actually went to university in Germany for a while. I thought I wanted okay. to become... It was a period. You thought you wanted to become what, sorry? A minister. Oh. I thought I, thought I wanted to study theology. That was just so guilt. I, <laughs> I studied theology at Bonn, yeah. um, which is a university in Germany, and um, then just kind of decided that that wasn't really my shtick. Um I loved living in Germany, and then after a few years, moved to the UK, lived there for a number of years, <clears throat> working in the hotel business. I, and then, then in 2007 or eight, I got an email. For, oh, so the review happened, and there was all this stuff about, you know, I got this call from the the new the new priestly order in Detroit. The old regime was out. The new new guys were in. That's when uh, the, um, it went from. Uh, it was from John Hales. John to Bruce. Hales to Bruce Hales. Yeah, yeah. And Bruce Hales, uh, ever the rebellious kid, brought drinking back with a vengeance. Yeah, yeah. bizarre. <laughs> um, but they called me and told me that they were sorry that they had withdrawn from me, and that they felt I had been treated as harshly as anyone could have been treated, and that uh, they felt badly, and that. I was their friend, and that um, if ever I wanted to chat, to call them, um, if I was ever back in the States, to give them a jingle, and we could hang out. One of them was my my cousin. Um, and it was, just, it was just so bizarre. It was so weird. Yeah. So I did go back to the States around this time, and when visited my, my parents, and uh, they were the same. You're welcome in our house anytime. You know, you're welcome to. Would you like to stay here? Like, you know. Um, and then Brenda, or sorry, my uh, ex-wife asked to see me. She came. She apologized for the way things had gone. It was just this big love fest, like hugs, loves. Oh, it's a mind fuck, isn't it? And then, I kind of universally said it's a little a little late a little late a little 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 late um kind of i'm pretty happy where i am got lots going on it is a mind fuck though what about your kids so i saw them um that was probably the last time i saw them actually (coughs) they were fine they were just but they would never let me see them without a priest there, which How, was that's not, so condescending. Eh? Like, just weird, like some, you know, overweight white 
brother and man watching everything that was said or done. It's just so bizarre. We, we only have we have like maybe ten minutes left. Can I can I can I just ask you just quickly, <laughs> just quickly? No, no, Jeez, really, like, I've taken up all the time. <laughs> no, but you know what? It it's I could probably go for another hour, <laughs> but I think we have a show coming up. Um, but uh, I was going to ask you though specifically because this is the the only way I can relate to any of the stories that I hear from ex members is if I close my eyes and and have a cathartic experience of what it would be like to be forcefully separated from my children. And I want to know how you've been able to handle that emotion uh, over the past however many years. It's very, very hard. Um, very hard. And it starts out as kind of this throbbing, searing pain. Um, and is actually quite debilitating. And a lot allows or makes you do things that you don't want to do. You, know, you might drink too much or you might do drugs. And, but over time, you sort of make peace with it and it just becomes more of like that arm or ankle you broke a few years ago that's just really achy. Yeah. Some days it's more achy than others. Um, but I, I still dream about it probably every other night. I still dream about them. Um, it's very much a reality, but that's not a present reality that anyone around me knows. You know, is there but, a is there a weird? I want I want to see how to put this properly. Is there almost a very ironic silver lining to know that the uh, the fact that they've been brought up inside a cult like that makes them less susceptible perhaps to longing for you so that they don't suffer as much? Am I totally off base or? Uh, I don't think you are. Um, I think there are some things I think their, their, their mother was, is an incredible woman. I, I think she was an incredible mother to them. So they, they had that. I think they had a very uh, materially comfortable upbringing. And I think they're all very strong believers in the system. And I think that gives them comfort and, and, and uh, sustenance, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I was recently on a, talking to someone who, who, who knows them fairly well, who only recently left. And, they, and she spoke about how poisoned the, the kids are against me. Um, you know, the brethren are, are, are masters at constructing narratives about people who left. Yeah. They don't need to be true narratives. They don't need to be factually based. But they construct narratives about almost everyone who leaves. Or everyone that at least, at least that they feel threatened by or that they feel is a threat to them. Mm -hmm. And they construct these narratives about them. And they're, I mean, the, the shit that I've heard about myself, I'm like, if only my life were that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy that bought a bike in London for no reason at all. Like, how could you believe yeah, this shit? Yeah. If only I could have been this drama. Like, wow. Jeez. Damn. I wish I knew that person because that life sounds super interesting. Um, what, is, what is your life like now? My life like right now is, is really wonderful, actually. Um, four, four years ago, almost four years ago, on June 1st, it'll be four years, married a wonderful wonderful woman um 
have two wonderful stepchildren. Uh, one is 18 and uh, one is 14. Uh, I live in western New York, so upstate in western New York near Buffalo. We own here, we own a business that is a, a restaurant and inn because for the last 20 some years, I've, that's all I've done. So we have a very busy little place here doing restaurant and inn stuff. <laughs> Making making meals and making beds. Yeah. It'd be a good uh, place for an ex brethren conference. Yes, seems like it would you know? be. It would be. It's very centrally located. Yeah. And then we have a. a in, we also have a home in Michigan, um, in northern Michigan, where my wife is from, um, and we have a design business there. My wife is an architect and a landscape architect. Nice. That it's explains kind of, the beautiful shelves behind you, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, she's probably the preeminent landscape architect in northern Michigan. Mm. So so we have a very busy design business there. Um, so we go back and forth a lot. We do a lot of traveling through Ontario <laughs> um, between Michigan and New York. But uh, yeah. life is good. Life is incredibly busy. There's never, mm. never, there's very little moments to catch your breath. But that's okay. Um, There'll be there'll be time later to to s- slow down and <laughs> but well, uh, I have a wonderful circle of friends. You know, one of my best friends that I made after I left the Brethren um, was a young, actually a student minister, and uh, the Presbyterian. Well, he was a Church of Scotland, and he was interning here in the Pre- Presbyterian Church. He knew the Brethren very well from his growing up in Scotland, but he's one of my oldest friends and. Another really great friend in doing genealogical research found out he's my 10th cousin. So I oh, have nice. a really great circle of friends, wonderful wife and, and kids, and uh, just just really, life is good. <laughs> well, good, because um, there's nothing better than to hear an ex-member talk about, uh, you know, where their life is now and that it's a positive force. Your story is, is, is really riveting. I, I find it very... Um, compelling and i and i like that it's come full circle you had a sheltered uh childhood and maybe there were some things or whatever but <clears throat> it seems like the the bookends of your life has been the happiest parts of your life and and i think that that should be something to to be proud of because of everything that you went through bradley mccallum thank you very much for joining us tonight on blackball i really appreciate it thank you james i appreciate yeah, talking night, sir yeah thank you <clears throat> wow i can't even imagine the five kids thing is I always get hung up on the children thing about, uh, you know, and then imagining myself in the dark of the night, like kidnapping all my kids, you know, running to Columbia or some shit. Um, but that was, uh, yeah, Bradley McCallum's story is, is very, very riveting. Um, I don't have my schedule in front of me, but I know I have another um, podcast tomorrow at eight o'clock. Um, and then uh, Thursday as well. I also have a famous novelist. Let's see if my
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.